Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have a real life rock star on the show. The one and only Mr. Lawrence Funderburk will be joining us. So make sure that you share this out to everybody you know. This is going to be a fantastic show. Stay with us. And we are back. Let me bring Lawrence on. Lawrence, welcome to the show. Hey, thank thank you for having me. Looking forward I, to it. I'm grateful that you're here, man. Should I call you Mr. Fundy? Hey, that's fine. That's fine. It's all good. Yeah. So so you and I, um, I met you, I don't even remember, seven, eight years ago, probably. Um, it was brief, but but we met. And then then recently you've You've been, um, we've been attending the same church and, and it's, I heard you speak the other day at church and it was, it was life altering. It was incredible. So, um, I'm very grateful to have you on here today. And, um, I want to, you know, this, I created this show almost four years ago and, and it was literally to help people get unstuck in life because I think we all hit those those walls in life and, and can't figure out how to get through them. And, and I know you've, you've done one heck of a job yourself doing that. So why don't we start with where you were born and raised? Yes, I'm from uh, Columbus, Ohio. I grew up on, on the West side. I grew up in an area called the bottoms. The bottoms is a very uh, depressing, a very debilitating, and quite frankly, a, a very degrading area of the city. And, uh, you know, not much, as they say, good can come out of that particular environment. You basically had uh, inner city uh, blacks on one side who lived in housing projects. And on the other side of I-70 West, you have basically Appalachian whites or uh, families from Appalachian descent. So obviously you grew up in this environment when racial tensions were still very high. Um, and the one thing that we had in common, different skin color, but we have poverty in common. And, and we know that poverty uh, is, is really uh, something that affects people um, the same, uh, regardless of your skin color, because poverty doesn't discriminate. And I think uh, when you grow up in that environment of low expectations, uh, it's very easy to think, I can't get, I can't get ahead. I'm never going to be successful. This is always going to be my lot in life. And I knew that even though my environment said that I couldn't have more, I said, I'm, I'm going to get more because I'm willing to I'm going to do the, the things that are necessary to be successful in life. So you grow up in inner city Columbus in the roughest, the toughest, the baddest, the meanest, the most dangerous housing project in central Ohio. It was called Settlement Gardens, uh, which was interesting because um, all of the streets were named after U.S. presidents. Right. You had Pierce, you had Van Buren, you had McKinley. My street, which was Buchanan, and I hear that he wasn't a very good president because he was the one who actually initiated under his watch, the Civil War, because he could have done some things differently. And wow. um, they promoted uh, life and liberty, and yet we lived in bondage. You, you, you grew up in this environment. And, and there was nothing, when you live 
in this environment, particularly Sullivan Gardens, there were no there were no gardens there. There were no plants. There were only weeds, you know, in this environment, particularly when you think about everything in that environment choking you, wanting you uh, to to cave in, to fall under pressure. And um, I said, you know, this is not going to be my lot in life. And you grow up in this environment. It can it can really wear on you. I always tell people when you grow up in poverty, you never leave poverty without any scars. And then also I grew up in a house full of women, which I I always share the story. I grew up with three older sisters and a single parent mom. And it was rough growing up in a house full of women. But I survived. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I survived. You know, a lot of a lot of Gilligan's Islands reruns. Those who are over a certain age understand that show. Also, a lot of soap operas. But when you grow up in a house full of women, it teaches you three things. Number one, it teaches you how to be compassionate. Number two, how to be sensitive. And number three, how to really tune in to the needs of others and to help them. And in Sullivan yeah. Gardens, you had drug dealers, you had gang bangers, you had a lot of other folks. I won't name them, but just sitting around on the sidelines, you know, not wanting anything out of life. And, and yeah. I said, this can't be my lot in life. I know I'm destined for something better than this. So you grew up in, on welfare. I'm not against welfare, but I don't think welfare should be a generational birthright. But I grew up in, in this environment. And, 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 and when you grow up this way, particularly, you just feel that the world is always against you and you're always an underdog. And then also we can talk a little bit about it. I'd like to talk about the fact that when you grow up in a single parent household, single parent mother, three older sisters, and then there's one person who's absent, who provided one half of your DNA, 23 chromosomes, and that being your biological father. We got to talk about that. We will. Uh, we definitely will. I, so it, did you go to, you went to like elementary school, high school, all that over there? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I went to public public school all the way up until high school. And then I went to a, a Christian school and then on to a Catholic school for, for, for academic and basketball reasons. But okay. um, you grow up in this environment, go to the same school, sit in the same classrooms as a lot of these guys and, and, and girls. And, and, and what you really see is that um, that uh, there were 10 people that I grew up with who were either murdered or committed suicide. Many others spent time in a literal prison and others in a figurative or, or, or imaginative prison in terms of their mind. Yeah. And um, you sit next to these folks and you realize that you come to the fork in the road and you got to make a decision. And the decision yeah. is, are you going to go right or are you going to go left? Yeah. And I chose, although I didn't have a pristine uh, upbringing or, or I didn't make all the right choices, but I made enough right choices to point me in a direction that would end up being a successful path by the grace of God, of course. But so, uh, you grew up in that environment. So I, and I know for for those who haven't met you in person, like I, I've had the opportunity to do, you're tall. <laughs> you're, you're like really tall. Um, so was, have you always been tall? Did you, did, did, or did you hit a growth spurt in high school or? No, I was always pretty much the tallest person, uh, in in my, in my class. Uh, I tell, uh, folks, cause kids all the time, how tall are you, Mr. Fundy? And I, and I tell them at sixth grade, uh, just as context, well, I was about six feet tall and I grew about two inches, inch and a half every year until I peaked out at six foot nine. So I never really had those seven or eight inches that that just never happened i was always uh, pretty tall so people assumed wow. that i was a lot older than what i was and uh, obviously gave me an opportunity to, to get some jobs because people thought because of my height that i was older and and i actually lied about my age to get a job my first job at cooper stadium which which ended up proving instrumental in terms of my development so so you played basketball in high school mm-hmm. uh, right um mm-hmm. where where and, and were you ever in that 
were you ever in that mindset that you were just talking about the gang bangers and all of that? Were you ever in that mindset? Did you have any, any challenges with that? Uh, no, the first, I, I want to say, you know, basketball obviously end up being, being a, a, a love of mine in terms of that, because, you know, basketball, I think is one of the only sports, particularly if you're a poor kid, you don't need a lot of money to play basketball. You just need a court, you need a, you need a hoop and you need a wheel to want to be great. And, and, and that's why I fell in love with basketball because that it was my sanctuary it was a way for me to get away from all of the, the chaos. And even though in my environment, even though I was there and the court was right in front of, of, of our housing project, that it was almost like I was in, in the arena all by myself. You know, that's how I had, how I looked at it because you can go there and you can escape to a place where you can actually truly get some peace. And that's how I always use basketball because basketball teaches you a lot of life lessons, just like a lot of sports. And I think kids should play sports, but my first love was actually football. But when you're tall, you're thin and you talk a lot of trash, that's a bad recipe for a football player. So um, because, you know, obviously, but I played up all the way up until high school. And I tell people wow. I love playing football. I, I'm going to be honest because uh, I play football, especially in my environment where you can hit someone and not go to jail for it. Right. I, I love playing football. And, 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 and particularly the pain that's associated with that environment, as I often say, you will take it out on other people to appease your own pain. And, 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 and this is what a lot of people don't really understand. And even in basketball to a certain extent, but, uh, but I played basketball, I loved basketball. And I realized that basketball could take me places that I never dreamed were possible. And I remember my mom, she presented me my, when I was 12 with a basketball, uh, it was a Larry Bird uh, and, and Magic Johnson basketball. So I would, so one day I would be like Magic Johnson, another day I would be Larry Bird. And, and, I, and I told my mother, I said, I'm gonna use this basketball and to have success in life. And I always tell folks that whatever sport you play, don't let the sport use you. Use the sport for bigger and better things. And I realized that basketball actually was not my purpose, but it was my platform to get me to my purpose. And that's where I stand right now today. That's so awesome, man. So you went, you played in, in high school and, and then you went directly to college. Is that, is that how that went down? Yeah, you know, my um, I played for uh, for a coach. His, his name was Nate Mitchell for the Boys and Girls Club AAU team. I actually got cut from the team. So the things that me and Michael Jordan have in common, obviously, we got we both got cut. Um, obviously, played pro. Uh, obviously, that's about all we have in common. I've got some Michael Jordan stories where I was talking trash, and and that wasn't a smart thing to do with the game's greatest player. But uh, when I got cut from that team, I remember leaving. Uh, the practice. And, and I said, you know, I'm never going to go through that again. I'm, and not only that, I'm going to be the best player in the country by my senior year. And I was in eighth grade. I was about to go into ninth grade. Didn't know how that was, but I knew that I was determined to want to have success in life. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be successful. Well, I didn't end up being the best player in the country. There was a guy in my senior year in 1989. His name was Kenny Anderson, who was a, a phenomenal uh, uh, player, end up being a number one pick in the NBA draft. Um, so he was first consensus. And I end up being number two, uh, even ahead of a guy by the name of Shaquille O'Neal. Um, we came wow. out of high school, and, but we all know who had a better career. He did than I did, but I ended up finishing number number two. So every college coach in the country, Krzyzewski, uh, uh Bobby Knight, uh, Dean Smith, um, Jim Behan, every college coach wanted me. And you realize when you go through all of that hype, it, and particularly when you have some deficits growing up in poverty and being a fatherless kid, that 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 it can put you in a frame of mind 
that that you're owed more than what is presented to you and that um, I think it, it really can handicap you. And that's what we see, particularly with today's kids, even more so who are very talented when it comes to athletics. So where, where tell everybody where you ended up going to. Yeah. So um, this this actually happened, you know, so when I was getting recruited and and this is where having not a father, but a dad, because a father is a biological act, but a dad is a biochemical action. And the dad is someone who invests in the well-being of his child or children and that child or the children can draw from in their time of need. And so can the dad. And I think there's a big distinction when it when when this happens. And I often say that when a father is 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 roaming uh, a home. Right. Uh, anything bad is probable. But when a dad is present in a household, then everything good is possible. And that's what I, I really got to talk about this, because I think we have a crisis in our country. And a lot of it has to do with fathers who don't transition into becoming dads. And, and the reason why I say that, I think about how extreme this is. Here I am, one of the top five high school players in the country. I'm playing for this high school father, Joseph Memorial High School, won many, many state championships. While we were playing in this uh, in this uh, this tournament, my senior year in December, uh, the coach kicks me off the team. We 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 just had we 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 were bumping heads, you know, because he wanted me to go to Ohio State. I didn't want to go to Ohio State, and there was a lot of things there. So he kicked me off of the team for talking back to him, and I got sent back home. And then I said, whichever coach, it was down to two. It was Dean Smith. Uh, from North Carolina and, and Bobby Knight of Indiana. And I said, whichever college coach calls me first, that's where I'm going to school. And you know who called me first? Bobby Knight. Bobby wow. Knight. And that was the reason. i show you how irrational it is that you go through this because you don't have a framework to be able to, to, to push aside the emotionalism and think about things rationally. So I went to Indiana. My mom said, it's not going to work, son. Uh, you know how you are. You know how he is. It, it's it's going to be a marriage made in hell. And it, and it actually ended up being that way. But but Coach Knight said something to me. He said, Lawrence, in all of my years, I still have the letters, in all of my years wanting to coach basketball, I, I've never wanted to coach a player more than you because you combine the rare uh, abilities of intellectual and physical that one rarely finds in, in, in an athlete. He says, it would be my honor to coach you. Now, one thing I know about Coach Knight, you do as well. Whatever he said, then you can take that and say, well, whether you agree with it or not, that's how he felt. Yeah. So um, I, I get to Indiana, first player in Indiana history to live off campus as a freshman. I told him, I said, the only way I'm coming to this school here is if I'm living off campus. I had a very difficult time uh, being around other people and, and taking the showers with them and all that. So a lot of quirky things about me. Obviously, I'm still kind of that way. And then I was there six games. Uh, he puts his arm around me. I just scored uh, 26 points. And he says to me, he says, just think of all of those a-holes back in Columbus who said you wouldn't make it here. And then about 30 minutes later, he kicks me out of practice and says, I want to enjoy the rest of practice without Lawrence, you know what, messing it up. I'm just going to leave it there. Wow. So that's Bobby Knight story. Bobby Knight out. kicked you out of practice. Me out. Well, the thing was, is Bobby Knight was a military guy. You know, yeah. he, he will build you up. Or he did. He, and then also he will tear you down. You talking about breakthrough walls. So he'll build you up, but then he'll break you down. And that was just really how his methodology was. And as someone as a kid who was very emotionally tilted or bented, it was very difficult to, to see past that. So he felt yeah. as though now he's got this game. He's coming to his own here in terms of Indiana. Now I've got to really put him 
kind of in his place, so to speak, so that he realizes that if he wants to become the player that, that, that I think he can become, then he's going to have to go through kind of my system. And with Bobby Knight, it's either his way or it was. It was either his way or the highway. Obviously, I chose the highway. Yeah. So where'd you go from there? So I went to in, I went to I, I, I went to Ohio State. I went to Ohio State afterwards. And I remember when I'm coming back and then I'm listening on the radio and a very popular station in Cincinnati says, guess who's coming back to Columbus? You guys are never going to believe it. Lawrence Funderburg. And I'm listening. Uh, Ken, half the people who were calling into that show said, we don't want him here. He's toxic. He's going to he's going to be disruptive to the team. Oh, wow. um, and, and, and that was very hurtful because these people didn't know me. And the one thing I know, and I write a lot of books, and I tell people, don't read the title, open the book up and read the contents inside. So you have people who made a judgment about me, didn't know me. They just assumed because I was a poor kid, grew up very difficult, but I was a very intellectual guy. And a lot of people didn't know how to read me. So they just labeled me this this kid who was out of control and who could never get along with others. And that was really hurtful. And then 50 percent said we want him here. There was a couple of guys, Craig Lee and Perry Carter, who were leaving. Uh, they were big men, interior players. And I really took that to heart and said, wow, it's amazing what people say about you. And they don't even know you. Now, that's one of the things about me. I don't judge people. I, I take it face value, my relationship with them, not in what anyone else has said, because I remember uh, what I had to go through uh, as, a, as a young man in, uh, yeah. in life. You know, I, I grew up in an incredibly poor household as well. And, um, and, and, and I, you know, I can remember personally, I, I had a, I had a chip on my shoulder <laughs> for a long time. Right. And life, life eventually humbles you. It, it, it will. But, you know, um, the, the, I mean, didn't you find though, that, that there were a lot of, uh, weren't there a lot of other people in the NBA that, that had the same kind of grew up in similar environments? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And I think the, the, the quagmire Meyer for me and for many others who observed me is that you had this kid from this troubled environment where, where here I am, one of the top five players in the country my senior year. All of the college coaches who were recruiting me, not one of them ever came into my neighborhood because I never wanted them to see where I lived. I never wanted my environment to be an indictment on my intellect. You understand? Yeah, so yeah. I didn't want them to look at me as this poor kid from the projects, African-American, broken home, fatherless. I never wanted them to judge me in that capacity. And yeah. so therefore, I kept them out. And I was very embarrassed by my environment because my apartment um, uh, we had mismatched furniture. Uh, and even in high school, no person ever came inside my apartment. No, not one person, because I was so embarrassed where I, where I lived that I would even have people drop me off outside my neighborhood because I never wanted them to see the trash, the dumpsters and all of this, because then they would they would have pity for me. I never wanted pity from anybody. I just wanted an opportunity. That's all I ever cared about. Wow. And um, it was very hurtful. And I know uh, there was an article when uh, me after me and Knight uh, clashed and, and and it's in it's in um, people can go back and watch it in SI they just go back to the vault and it and it said in there that someone was quoted that Lawrence was obviously embarrassed by his upbringing and I think about my mother who passed away last year almost mm. about a year to the day and wow. she was the only parent that I ever knew and my mom had a lot of uh, a lot of mental uh, illness problems. She never, ever watched me play sports. She never actually left the home and all that. And I realized that some of those things, you know, were, were, were transferred onto me. 
But when you, I tell people, you got to be very careful what you say about people, because even someone who's arrogant, even someone who's cocky or whatever, the reason why they do that, there's a deficit that's there that you got to look past that. There has to be the grace and accountability, yeah. but you got to, to look past that and be able to see that that person is coming from a position of pain. That's why they're responding that way. No one, no one just responds that way by accident. There's an intentional and deliberate reason why that person ends up in that a lot of people will push away from them. But for me, I draw closer to people like that because I know what it's like to have pain and obviously to say, please help me. You're screaming on the inside, right? Like I get, I totally get that, man. <clears throat> That's the subtitle of my first book is turning pain into profit because you can, you can turn that around. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so you ended up, um, did you finished your college years at Ohio state? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, a matter of fact, I was texting with Otis Winston about you the other day. Mm -hmm. He said to say, hi, he might even be watching. I don't know, but, um, so what happened? I know you were, you went into the NBA draft mm -hmm. and I don't know how all of it works. I've never paid attention to the draft of any mm -hmm. sport. Um, so talk a little bit about that. That had to be a lot of pressure, man. Yeah, it, it was. And and as I often say, too, that, you know, the pressure, you know, and, and I, as I as I mentioned, particularly in a faith based setting, you know, I had I, I had a drug problem in, in college. I had oh. it was pharmaceutical drugs and, and it was benzos, benzodiazepines, which is in if you think about the neurotransmitters, it was an, it was in a GABA family. So GABA is gamma amino butyric acid. And it's basically your body's ability to be able to to relax and be at peace. And when you don't have that, you know, you have anxiety. So I was on benzos and people didn't know that, you know, because as an athlete, you can compartmentalize a lot because because as an athlete, you can go places because you can compartmentalize in your mind and that people assume you have it all together. But yeah. I was literally taking the generic version of a diazepam, which is Valium to relax, to play. And then I was also taking Tamazepan, which is basically Ambien to go to sleep at night. And people didn't realize that. Why? Because not only in terms of the pressure, but also think about the damage of growing up in poverty. Think about mm -hmm. that. Think about even maybe things that were passed on to me genetically, right? And a lot yeah. of addictions that people have, 60% of them are passed down through your tree, which means the yeah. other 40% can be just because of certain triggers that actually, as I say, push you or pull you or propel you into a particular addiction. But yeah. I had pressure from, from fans, obviously, and and and, and when, when you're the big man on campus and that people assume that every, everything is there and that you realize that, that, that this is an enormous responsibility that you have. And then you have your family in terms of your family, you know, looking to, to, to have the support yeah. there, particularly if you make it to the pros and then obviously my future. So, so the fans, my family, and then the future. And then you realize that, that there are a lot of things and that you hide from really who you are and you cover a lot of things up. And then now I'm free. So I can talk openly about this because I'm free through the right. blood of Jesus Christ. But <laughs> when you go through this and then you come into the pros right and, and when i was when i was going through you know all of the the, the, the prep camps to, to 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 be drafted and and for teams to look at me i remember there was a team um and i don't share this and it's hurtful for me to even share this there was a team i won't say the team he says you know he was an executive he said lawrence everyone knows that you have lottery talent in terms of your abilities are, are incredible he said but nobody's going to draft you in a lottery because they can't trust your brand and your brand is one has been up and down, you know, all over. Yeah, the place. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, wow, it was it was there because so I had outplayed a lot of guys in a, a power forward position. There were two guys in the 94 draft 
who I would say, yes, they, they should have been taken ahead of me in power force. Uh, Juwan Howard, who played at Michigan, now is the head coach, and a guy by the name of Brian Grant, who was the eighth pick in the draft. Outside of that, power forwards, none of those guys should have been drafted ahead of me. Do you see? Do you see what Tom Tom says there on the screen? <laughs> Can you read that? Who's the best power yeah. forward ever? Barkley, Mailman, or Duncan? <laughs> well, I mean that's that's a tough. I would say probably Tim Duncan, and it's tough because you know Carl Malone. But when you think about the best power forwards of all time. Most people yeah. never, ever, or players of all time, those two guys are never mentioned, right? They talk about Kobe. They talk about Magic. They talk yeah. about Michael Jordan. But no one ever talks about um, how great, you know, Tim Duncan and and um, and, uh, and Carl Malone, Charles Barkley, of course, because he's still out in the public domain. Yeah. But Carl Malone and Tim Duncan, both those guys, you know, shied away from, from the public eye, you know? Yeah. But they were ac actually two of the best power forwards of all of all time players of all time and Tim wow. Duncan because of he was seven feet you couldn't really guard him and they called him the big fundamental and 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 that's why he was able to play so so long wow seven he's seven foot tall seven feet tall yeah wow you know and what's it what's interesting is he came to Ohio State for a basketball camp when I was in college so he was in high school and he he, he came up to me and was talking to me and then he said, oh, man, you know, and he said I blew him off. So that's probably why he punished me in the NBA. He said, he said, he said, hey, man, uh, uh, Lawrence, I was I was such a big fan. And you and the man, you blew me off, man. You just you didn't even give me the time of the day. So that's probably why he he went at me sometimes on the court. I, he's not like that guy. He's not he's not that type of guy. I was I'm, yeah. just, I'm being facetious. Jeez. So so you so back to the you were you were in you were in the draft. Right. That's where we were, I think. Yeah. So I'm in a draft and I realize and I go I play in all these tournaments, these camps. I remember there was one. It was called the Phoenix Invitational. Um, so I was the second leading scorer. So I averaged uh, 19 points. There was a guy named Eric Piekowski. He averaged 21. Um, and then and then uh, I was second in rebounding. So I averaged 12 rebounds in, in the in the three games. And then Brian Grant, who averaged 15 rebounds. So here I am. And then the five players that they picked to make the all tournament team. I, I'm second in scoring, second in rebounding. I played the most minutes of any power forward, had the best assist to turnover ratio, and I didn't even make it in the in the in the five players for the all tournament team. Wow. So I realized and I knew that I was a marked man because of my history. Even though I went to Indiana, even though I left and came to Ohio State, I graduated with honors. People don't know this, but I was a Dean's List student at Ohio State. I graduated magna cum laude in business finance, which is not easy to do. No cupcake degrees for Lawrence Funderburg. I'm going to use my mind, and I always tell athletes, don't get caught up in only thinking about from the neck down. Use yourself and your ability from the neck up. So I, I never wanted people to steer me or label me as a player who was a, who was a dumb jock. Yeah. So I knew that I was a marked man when it came to that, and then I realized once I saw the draft, and then I was projected to be a late first round draft pick. And I was three picks from from not being drafted. I was the 51st pick in the wow. 1994 NBA draft. So I subsequently they, they drafted Brian Grant at Sacramento Kings. Yeah. And they draft, drafted another guy named Michael Smith. And then so the, 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 the GM said, listen, we got only two of you are going to make the team. These the two guys we drafted ahead of you probably are. are we, we obviously know Brian Grant will be. But we're only we're only going to keep two power forwards. So I had to go overseas for three years and then wow. it gave me an opportunity to, to not only to grow up, but to really appreciate the opportunity in front of me. And I tell yeah. people all the time, if you have a problem with America, go live overseas. 
Okay, you want to complain? I always tell people there are a lot of people who complain about what's wrong in America as opposed to providing solutions to do right for all Americans. Uh, okay, stop complaining about America. America is not a flawless country, but I've been right. to many countries and around the world, and I can guarantee you it's the best among available choices, even in spite of the flaws and all the historical uh, injustices that I, I know my people have experienced as an African-American. So when you yeah. go over there and you appreciate the fact that you're on other soil. And then when you come back here, you realize the appreciation. And God was really working on me as well to turn my life around because it was it was chaotic at the time in terms of how I lived my life. Yeah. So so you went. You, I, I, so you didn't go to the Sacramento Kings. You went overseas. No, I went overseas. I played I played in Greece for two years in France for for another year. And then also I played in in Italy, played in Israel for for a few months as well. So. Um, so yeah, it, 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 but it was a humbling opportunity. I always tell people that God is in the humble pie business and the pie that he offers, you better eat it. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I, I realized that and, and that really helped me. And I, you, you said this, when you grow up in a fatherless environment, yeah. there's one of three outcomes, right? Um, it, 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 number one is you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to strive, you know, in your own strength to yeah. want to do it because, because you feel like you've been shortchanged. So I'm going to show the world. I'm going to prove to you. And that's how I was. I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it. I, I'm I'm going to be the best. Right. And I used to tell people I talked a lot of trash. And 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 as I said, I talked trash to Michael Jordan. I shouldn't have done that. that was very smart <laughs> to do. But you talk a lot you of trash. tell that story. Yeah. You talk a lot of trash. And, and that's really because everything to me was competition. And yeah. I believe fathers are tied to a system, the opioid system in your body, which is natural. Yep. And specifically endorphins. And if you don't have those proper deposits from the relationships and from the example of seeing a biological father, then what you're going to do is go on this campaign to manufacture it yourself. I think about LeBron James or 50 Cent or Jay-Z, all of these guys who say, yeah, my father made me. Yeah, he made me, made you, but it was through a manufactured process. You understand yeah. what I mean? Yeah. That yeah. was me. I, I see so many people, not just males, but females as well, not getting that love and that support from not a father, but from a dad. And then the other extreme is the dive. You say, you know what? I don't care. I don't want anything out of life. I have no ambition, no drive, no determination. So I'm just going to just settle here and this is where I'm going to stay. And then the right way is to thrive, which I believe through a relationship with Jesus Christ is to thrive and to say, you know what? I have God the Father as my heavenly father and that no matter what about my imperfect father on this earth, I have a perfect father in heaven. So I know I still can achieve greatness in life. So you have one of three options. And that was really how I looked at it when it came to um, the father dynamic. Wow. So powerful, man. So let me get this right. Didn't you played for the Sacramento Kings? Though, yeah, right? I played for Sacramento Kings. So I played three years overseas. I, I came back. I signed a two-year deal with Sacramento. And okay. then I signed a five-year deal with Sacramento. And then I signed my last year. I played with the Chicago Bulls. So 11 years uh, in total, but uh, three years overseas, eight years in NBA. Wow. So I didn't. Uh, okay. I did not realize you played for the Bulls. I I, I missed that somewhere <laughs> in, mm -hmm. in my research. So is, did you play with Jordan? No, no, no. He was uh, he was well retired by, oh, by, by that okay. time. Yeah. Ben okay. Gordon, uh, Tyson Chandler. Those were the guys playing for Chicago. And what was interesting is um, I, I, we got to talk about forgiveness because I grew up in a fatherless home. And the one thing yeah. that I had to do was to forgive my father. And I talk a lot about Amen. reciprocal forgiveness. I'd love to tell the story about 
Dick Vitale is as well. If we have time, uh, when we have all, dude, I'll be on here all day with you if we need to. So we got all. It's my show, and it's the internet. <laughs> you, you know, you know when you when 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 your father abandons you, and I and I, my father was an alcoholic. Not only was he an alcoholic, he was a blackout drinker. So the three times that he came to see me, which were always unannounced, he never kept his word. Uh, he would sit in the corner and he would have his forty ounce of malt liquor, and then he would he would black out. I mean, he, he wouldn't even talk to me, wouldn't even spend any time with me. And I think about how hurtful that was. And then when he passed away, you know, I didn't know him. And I told people that my father cared more about the bottle than he than about the emotions bottled up inside of me. And that mm -hmm. is very hard. And I know I have a young man who's sitting next to me who has a very strong father or dad in his life. I'm a dad now. And it, it's hard to relate. You don't understand. And I always tell people all the time, if you have a, a dad in your life, you don't realize how much of an advantage you have over those who do not. So, so when he passed away, um, did I go to his funeral? I did not because I don't attend funerals of people I don't know. He was a mystery man to me. But the one thing that I had to do was to release him, even though I, I didn't. I never was able to sh say that to him face to face, but I had to release the pain and all of that. And the more I study about addiction and all of that, the more willing I am to forgive him and say, oh, man, because it provides a platform for grace to see that his drug of choice pointed to the dysfunction that he had. And in turn, he was dealing with his own deficits. So I always say, if you, if you, if you find the drug, then that will point you to the dysfunction and dysfunction will obviously point you to the deficits that you need to address in order to help that particular individual. So I had yeah. to forgive him. And I realized that it was very important to walk in forgiveness. And if you don't walk in forgiveness, then that's going to really, really, really have a disaster effect on their life. And the reason why I say that, so Coach Rick Alderman, who was the coach of the Sacramento Kings, um, the more the closer I got to the Lord, the more I saw myself being pushed down the bench. So uh, a very successful uh, career coming in in terms of the NBA when I had the playing time and I played behind a guy by the name of Chris Weber. Who played uh, for the wow. team up north? He played for. I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say Michigan. I don't. Oh. I, okay, I know Buckeye <laughs> fans. I'm gonna say. And 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 and, and you want to protect Ohio State, and that shows. There's a there's a mechanism called oxytocin, but I'm not gonna go there. But um, <laughs> I, I personally on. don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so I played behind him, who ended up. Wow. He just got into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. So and, wow. and, and I used to play against him, and then now I'm stuck behind him, and I realized that my playing time because obviously he's one of the best players in the NBA, one of the best players of all time. So I realized that my playing time. So Rick Alderman, um, I was using his rotation early on. And then toward the end of my career, my, my time was spotty at best. And then, you know what? I, I had a lot of pain and, and, and really animosity toward him. But, but, but the Lord, I had to go back to Sacramento in, in that year, my last year, I went to a, a game and I talked to him and I and we because because he he did. He, if you weren't in his rotation, he didn't really talk to you. That that was that was kind of his style. You know, if you weren't in wow. his rotation and I felt man slighted because you're the coach. You're supposed to acknowledge all players. It doesn't matter how much money you get paid. So I when I went back there, I talked to him. And then immediately when when I when I got released from that situation in terms of holding him hostage or he was holding me hostage, however we look at it. Yeah. Then I got a call to sign with the Bulls immediately, like a week later. Wow. So I tell people, whether you're religious or not, yep. you got to release yep. people. You got to forgive Amen. people. I tell my people, black people, that you can't hold white people hostage for the historical injustices of what happened in the past. You got to let them go. And if you do yeah. not, then you're responsible for the consequences of holding to that onto that pain. 
So I'm not saying you're not supposed to hold people accountable. What I'm saying right. is hold people accountable, but extend grace at the same time. And that gave me an opportunity to play for the Bulls. And wow. I always wanted, I had, I had two kids. We actually had three kids. We lost one child, but, but, but my daughter, uh, who's the oldest, that I, I told the Lord, I said, will you please allow my daughter to see me play in an NBA uniform? And then he provided that opportunity right after I was able to forgive Coach Rick Alderman for the pain Dude, of not playing. I got chills all over my whole body right now, man. That's that's unbelievable. And it's so true. I, I wrote about that in my book. You got to forgive. I remember when somebody told me, Lawrence, you got to forgive your father because I didn't have a dad growing up either. And, 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 and I was like, and he said, you got to pray for him. And I said, bro, you're crazy. I, I pray for him to burst into flames. Maybe, you know, he said, well, that's a start. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, but it's so true, man. There's so much power in forgiveness. Mm -hmm. You know, listen, our society is, as I tell, uh, our streets are on fire because of an unmet desire. And, and that is the love of a father, the witness of a father, the example of a father, not to the father, any earthly father is mm. perfect by any means. But I believe that in many cases, in a majority of cases, in terms of drug addictions, alcohol addictions, pornography addictions, sex addictions, crime addictions, uh, mayhem addictions, whatever the case is, you can lay it squarely at the feet, I believe, of fathers who never transition into being dads. I can prove it. I can prove it from scripture. Malachi 4, 5 through 6 says, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, I will send my prophet Elijah and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike there for the curse. And that I believe emphatically that fathers are connected from a neurotransmitter perspective. We know that mothers are oxytocin, not to be confused with oxycotton. But we know that they have the connection with oxytocin, which is the bonding, trusting and the loving. It is physiologically. It is biochemical. I mean, you can't get away from this in terms of all of those chemical reactions that mothers have. Yeah. Now, the question is, how do fathers play a role in the neurochemical uh, development of a child? And I say without question is that fathers have to be Papa Boost. They have to be able to boost their children to be able to get the discipline, the determination and all of those things. And we know that the opioid apparatus is exactly that, right? The sense of euphoria, pushing past pain, um, uh, all of those things. And that we know that a father provides that. And people who don't have uh, fathers, I remember talking to some, some individuals and they say, my father wasn't in my life. But when he showed up at my recital, when he showed up at my sporting game, I had my best performance of all time. Why? Why is that? How about Michael Jordan? Here's my Michael mm -hmm. Jordan uh, story here right now. So uh, so I'm, I'm playing an NBA um, yep. and I'm, yep. I'm talking trash uh, to Michael Jordan. Right. You yeah. don't talk trash to Michael Jordan, the game's greatest player. <laughs> are you are, what's wrong with you? Well, I, where I'm from, I'm from an environment where we talk a lot of trash and we back it up. But obviously I made a terrible mistake that day. So I'm talking trash to Michael Jordan and I got fouled on the play. I was averaging at the time about 13 points. This was the first uh, I don't know how many games of the season, but um, I was averaging about 13 points and about uh, five rebounds in 21 minutes coming off the bench. I was I was wow. nicknamed instant offense. So that means when I came in, I was I was making it happen. So I got fouled on the play and I walked past Michael Jordan. I said, nobody can stop me out here. Yeah, the way you're looking at me is exactly, exactly the way you wow. should be. Like, what are you thinking of? Wow. And then I can't tell you exactly what he said because I can't use that language <laughs> on air. Right. I'm not going to do that. And I promised me, I promised myself that I would never tell people exactly what he said. But he said to me, he said, Lawrence, this is not Ohio State. 
I'm like, wow, Michael Jordan oh, wow. used to watch me play in college. Yeah, because they want to watch to see what their competition is going to look like. And now in his high school, they're going to high school to watch high school players, particularly uh, games on TV. And he says, you're on a whole nother level now. He says, you got to bring it every day if you want to survive and, and make it in this league. Here he was. He, he had won five championships, about to win the fifth championship. And then he woke me up to the reality of excellence. Now, let's back up and see what made Michael Jordan who Michael Jordan was. And the fact is, and, and the one person he said that he always had to see in the stands, you ready? He loved his mama. He comes from a big family, uh, North Carolina, uh, you know, very close yeah. family. He said he loves his mom, very close yeah. to his mom. But he said the one person that he needed to see in the stands was his dad. He said he didn't have any peace. He couldn't play. He couldn't perform. He he, he, he didn't have, he did, just didn't have the juice without his father being there to provide that fuel. And he mm -hmm. said he needed that. And then, and this is what I tell folks all the time. And I realize that where we are in our society, but I think about all of the kids and, and kids who are in juvenile facilities, people who are in prison. Um, I think about all the things in our society. And then now we've got to look at where it is and how important dads play a role in being a boost. Mo the mothers, I call them mama bond, we know that yeah, that's what oxytocin yeah. is. Oxytocin is about bonding. Yeah. But what about the boosting endorphins? And you see all of these individuals who are on opioids, all these drugs, ding, ding, ding. When are we going to see the connection? There has to be a connection and it will always be biochemical. It has to be biochemical. You got to look at the biochemical if you want to help people in any type of addiction or any type of difficulty in life. You got to get to the root cause and the biochemical is what you feel. You say, what are you talking about? What well, is all this biochemical? Well, you have neurotransmitters, right, in terms of how you feel. And then you have hormones. That's your biochemistry. And if you look at the biochemistry, the drugs, the drug of choice is the result of the pain plug of force. They are injecting things. They are ingesting things because they're trying to get their fix from a neurochemical perspective. When are we going to put two and two together, people, to truly liberate and help people who are bound in various addictions? Wow, that's that's so powerful. So if we if we we unpack that a little bit, so you're you're, I mean, and I know you're not blaming because that's not who you are, um, but you're you're saying, um, I mean, how do do you think that if your father would have been in your life, your career in the NBA would have been stronger, better? It would have been different because I wouldn't have been coming from a place of of, of being bitter, but being better. Right. And, mm. and that's the thing, because when you have a father, when I think about my my, my son, my daughter and then many others. Right. So I have a, a young man who's sitting next to me. Um, I wear a hoodie and, and and these hoodies got started because of something that happened in our society. Uh, and it was it was uh, uh, Trayvon Martin. So Trayvon Martin. And I tell people that I don't wear a hoodie because of any movement. I'm down with the moment. And the moment is, I remember when I was in a hood and I remember when I was told that I was never going to be nothing but a poor kid from the projects. So I wear a hoodie because of that moment. And a hoodie is supposed to really do a, a, a few things. And in particular, to cover your head. And it is my responsibility to cover the heads of young people in our society from all of the negative downloads in terms of what's going on. And we yeah. particularly know when it comes to technology. And the more we depend on technology for guidance and direction, the less human and humane we become. So it's not just the Trayvon Martins, because I do start with my people first, being an African-American in yeah. terms of kids in the inner city uh, and, and working with kids in the hood, working with kids who come from broken homes, the gangs and all that stuff. So I, I do start there. But also there's a young man who's sitting next to me named Mason. He's he's uh, he's a Caucasian. He's in college, uh, young male. 
Uh, he comes from a very good family, but but also to invest in him. So I have a responsibility to all kids, not just a particular uh, kid in terms of uh, ethnic background, but to all kids because of this. It's the hoodie. I'm down with Team Hoodie. It's about a moment, not a movement, because with a with a movement, you can opt out of. But with a moment, you can only opt in if you want to be a difference maker. And that's really what it's about in society, because that's me. We got to bring people together. Yeah, I, I have a campaign called Lane Change You. People can yeah. learn more about it at Mr. Fundy, M-R-F-U-N-D-Y dot com. I'll put that up on bringing the screen. people together. Yeah, we got yeah. to bring people together. We got so many people who, who live in this in this world of being divided and they are only focused on their tribe instead of bringing people together. And Amen. I believe you can use me because of my experiences, my ability, not just to have intellect, but to have dialect as well, because we all speak English, but we don't all speak the same dialect. We have a dialect problem in America because we won't take the time to speak to people in their native tongue, particularly when it comes to the pain that they're dealing with. So it, I'm asking and I say, Lord, use me. I'm ready. Look who's on right now. Yes. Yes. We need unity for sure. That's but David the, Anthony. But a lot of people are, are, are talking, Ken, about unity. But what does that actually mean? And a lot right. of people will go back to their tribe. They go running back to their tribe. We see this even in a church. It's happening in a church where I say there are a lot of Caucasian American pastors and congregants who are more conservative than they are Christian. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait. But there are a lot of African American preachers and, and, and churchgoers who are more black than they are believer. Yeah, you see where I'm going. So we make this polarization, right? Either or black, white, rich, yeah. poor, straight, gay. We have this, this society, this hell bent on division. And then I say, who's going to step forward to bring people truly together? If I'm running for political office, my campaign slogan would be bringing America together. That, mm. that would be it. That would be it. Now, it doesn't yeah. mean, and I tell people, I don't have to give up who I am to accept who you are. I'm not going to be part of a deconstruction project to, to accept your reconstruction process. I'm not going to do that. But I can accept you. But at the same time, you must accept me for who I am. Amen. And, 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 and that's that's the way it has to be. So, you know, I, back to your NBA career, just to, to, to tighten that up a little bit, tie it up, I guess. Um, I mean, 11 years is, I, I, what's the average? I mean, 11 yeah, so, years so seems eight, like so a I long play, time. Yeah, so I play eight in NBA and three overseas. So the average is about three, about, about four years across the board in any professional, yeah. the major sports, right? Yeah. That's about, that's about, about four years. So you 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 were you were a professional athlete for mm -hmm. for definitely much longer than the average. Yeah. So my yeah. My, my last uh, year, I was thirty five when when I retired. Um, okay. And 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 that's where I always say when it comes to retirement in professional sports, it, it's it's either by force or by choice. And and sure, I could have kept playing. I was in shape. I'm fifty one. I tell people a true baller never retires, especially when you have have individuals. I go shooting. Uh, some I, I'll shoot sometimes on a particular court. And then people don't know who I am, especially if they're younger. They have no idea who I am. And then they'll ask me, do you want do you want to play one on one? And I'm like, are you you sure you want to play me one on one? <laughs> I said, now I said, look, they're not giving any 51 year olds uh, contracts. Right. Uh, and there was a sign. Uh, uh, somebody had put a sign uh, at one of the Cavs game and somebody sent me a clip that signed Lawrence Funderburg to a 10 year contract. You know, they're being facetious because, you know, everybody was. There were so many yeah. players, I guess, that were out, maybe sick with COVID or whatever. Uh, but um, but 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 I still play and I still have the passion. And I I'm a very passionate person. And 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 that I, I go back to practicing because I remember the time when I was in a court as a little kid 
And it's that same passion, but also now I'm reflecting and I'm and I'm getting downloads on, on basketball can teach you so much about life and making connections to bring people together. That's why mm -hmm. I still play and that's why I still get on the court because I think about me being a bridge builder at a time when there's so many people and today who are blowing up bridges. Wow, that's so true. So so you got out of the NBA um, and you, the Bulls was your last last mm -hmm. year, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah. and then, then where, like the day that you retire from, uh, uh, from that as a professional, I mean, dude, as a professional athlete, the, the spotlight's always on you. I mean, I would imagine and being six foot nine, like it's hard to not have the spotlight on you. Right. So where did you go from there? Yeah. You know, it, it's tough because, you know, and, and I'm not uh, a superhero type of guy, certainly uh, in terms of my religious beliefs, but you know, it's akin to to going in the, the phone book as Superman. And when you come out, you're permanently Clark Kent. You can never go back in there. You can never do those amazing things, particularly in a public, uh, in, a, in a setting where the, the world watches. Now yeah. you're just a normal citizen. And now when, especially this happened to me, when when your wife tells you to take the trash out, you got one of two options, right? You can you can try to beat your chest and say, what, who are you talking to, right? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I set this all in motion. Or you can do what I did is what? Take the trash right. out. Okay. So, so you, you, but, but there's a thing that they don't prepare uh, these athletes for life after sports. Gail Sayers said it best. He says, athletes should think about the end of the career at the beginning of the career. Mm. So, me, I've got three degrees and I played pro ball for 11 years. So, I, I've got my, uh, my business finance undergraduate degree. I got my MBA when I was playing an MBA because I knew one day the ball would stop bouncing for Lawrence Funderburg. What was I going to do with my life? I can't stand on that basketball. If you stand on the basketball, you're going to break your neck. But I knew I had my books that I can stand on that would give me a platform. And then I've been a certified financial planner for over 10 years now, which was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Wow. So I knew that I had the education. The issue is transitioning in your mind that you have to be basically a normal person. And that's a very difficult thing. And that's why so many athletes self-destruct when it comes to drugs and so many different things, because no one ever prepared him for life after sports. So for me, we started the Lawrence Funderburg Youth Organization to wow. give back. And I didn't want it to be about sports. I wanted it to be meaningful. So I, I try to distance myself from sports because so many kids want to be a professional athlete, but that's unrealistic. But you can be very successful in a variety of other career fields as well. But you got to put in the work and you got to obviously have three things. Number one, you got to have the exposure to it. Yeah. Number two, you got to have the experience in terms of putting people in those situations so that they can really uh, understand what it's like. And number three, you got to have the expectations, particularly when it comes to inner city communities. We have a gap. And a lot of that has to do with reading. We got to get people excited. You can see in my background here, you see books. I'm, I'm reading constantly. At any given time, I'm reading between the seven to 10 different books because I realized that reading can take you places in life that you never even imagine right. if you're willing to go there and to put in the work. So so I so so the youth organization, uh, uh, public speaking. I speak all around the country. I work with various uh, organizations, uh, businesses in terms of leadership development. Um, uh, I, I, we're starting Lane Change You, which is going to be a platform to really help people, our country in five areas, mental health, which we have a crisis in mental health, uh, civil discourse, getting people to the table to have those crucial conversations. As I said, finding common ground uh, at, the, at the front end, and then common good in the middle, the middle ground. And then at the back end, which is hard, common sense solutions to actually put in the work to really move our country forward. And then we have cultural capital, 
which is the upgraded version of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we have, we have, we have in society, you focus on particular subgroups or subsets where a lot of emphasis, but you got to improve the mindsets and the skill sets of all people, particularly in an organization, if you really truly want to have buy-in when it comes to the DNI push, which I, I, I talk about cultural capital, because where where DNI falls short, cultural capital picks up in terms of how I propose it and walk people through that process. And then the fourth one is leadership ethics. If we have a crisis in any ever society, guess what, folks? We have a crisis in leadership. And then lastly is economic disparities. We know that glaringly that not everybody, right, is running in the same lane. Right. And as I often say that when it comes to, 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 to this dynamic, our lane assignment at birth often dictates and determines our life outcomes on earth. Let me say that again. Our lane assignment at birth often dictates and determines our life outcomes on earth. And as someone who is an English geek, the key word in that whole sentence is an adverb. It's often, often doesn't mean that it's always has to be the case. It means it's often and that. Yeah, that's true. But it's not guaranteed that it has to be that way throughout a person's life or legacy. So we have to really think about uh, about semantics, about syntax. And we have people who are tone deaf when it comes to the English language in being able to have a connection with others. Your sense of balance and harmony is in your ears, your vestibular system, your sense of balance. Yeah. So we got to have people who have a, a gift and a knack to be able to connect with people when it comes to their balance, their harmony, and their peace of mind. Where are those folks? Because we live, we are in a society today where it's all dissonance. Where's the resonance? Where's the resonance to be able to connect with people on the level where you bring people together as opposed to repelling them and pushing them farther apart? That's me. Okay. That's why I have been born for a time such as this to step forward to bring America together. You know, when when you when you talk to um trying to think how how to ask this question. So when you're when you're talking to somebody that's that's in the projects right now, they're in mm -hmm. high school, they're mm -hmm. in, in middle school. Middle school is the worst. Um, but like you know, you're they're they're there right now. And, and, and they need somebody like you to, to, to talk to them, right. To, to, to get a message across. How do you reach? Because in, in, in that environment, a lot of times it's just about surviving. Like, it, Hey, I just got to survive today. Right. So what, how do you get to them? How do you get that? Because it's a choice and you know that I know that, but, but how do you tell them like, dude, you got to make a different choice. Listen, there's a there's a biblical figure. His name was Mephibosheth in the Bible. His he was dropped by a caregiver in haste. So he had a caregiver. He was dropped at the at, at, at five months old uh, because uh, there was news and pending news. And I tell people whether you're religious or not, just stay with me in terms of this dynamic here, that there was news of an impending um, a raid on, 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 on their community. And that this caregiver who was supposed to be taking care of him dropped him and he was paralyzed for the rest of his life. Now, there are some individuals in life when we think about the dynamic, particularly black and brown communities, impoverished communities, who in some ways are paralyzed from not their own doing, but from the doing of those who have dropped them in terms of their caregivers. So it's our responsibility as in society to actually come alongside and to help them. And I think it's very important in that it, 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 it always comes down to choice. You, you always have choice, no matter if you're in that situation. When I grew up in an environment, I had a choice to either gravitate toward the gangs and the drug dealers and all that. That wasn't my gravitational pull. 
And then once those guys realized that I had promised, they never even tempted me in that regard. Yeah. But we, but today is different. It's a different dynamic. There's so many different things that are going on and that these kids are facing so much, but they still have choice. You always are giving choice regardless of what your situation is. So when I talk to kids, I say, look, you know, you can trade in those survival skills, which is what a lot of them focus on, you know, surviving. I just got to survive. And you don't even think about the future because your whole focus is on the present. And a lot of that is what is driven by the past. So so the past is driving what they have in front of them right now, which is the present. And they're not even able to see into the future. So you got to get them off that treadmill of only seeing things from their current lens. you got to be able to see. That's what vision is. Vision is the Bible says where there is no vision, the people perish. I don't care if you're religious or not. You got to have vision. Companies have vision. They have culture. They have all of these things. Why can we get people who are in impoverished conditions to have the same game plan for success? That's really what lane change you is that your lane assignment at birth doesn't have to be all throughout your life. And when you're working with young kids and I just did this. So so I had six speaking engagements over three days. I had I had uh, my, my one on Thursday with the Ohio Chamber of, of, of Commerce working with their leadership staff. Yeah. And then I went to Southern Ohio. I went to Appalachian, Ohio, Logan, Ohio, and, and all white males. Right. And the opioid crisis down there. And I talked mm -hmm. about real issues with them. Right. Yeah. A black man coming in, talking to them. And I'm like, whoa, we going down here. I see the woods <laughs> and all this stuff. I'm like, where are they taking me? Right. But I knew God was going to protect me. So I'm going down in that environment. Then I had two, two, two um, sermons that, that I did at a church on Sunday. And then people don't know this. Immediately after this, I dropped my wife and my son off. And there is these cuts and conversations, uh, haircuts and conversations with kids from Mary Haven, kids who are who are having drug problems or their families are having drug problems. I go immediately after that and I spend two hours with these kids and I'm telling them my story and I'm talking about this and I can see their eyes. They're 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 afraid because of what I'm saying is so true. And then now the responsibility is this. Whenever you're giving life transforming information, you're responsible for the instructions that follow. Let me say that again. Whenever you're giving life transforming information, you're responsible for the instructions that follow. You can't say nobody didn't tell you. I'm here. I'm sh I'm sharing with you living proof. Yeah. And I can see it and that they're afraid, but they're hopeful that there is an option that they can travel down in terms of not going down the wrong way. And then afterwards, I take these kids to eat some real food. I believe in the medicine foods of God. I promote that. That's all I eat. If God didn't make it, I don't eat it. It doesn't go in my body. So I took them to this place called Brassica. If you ever been at Brassica? I took them there. They got the punch, right? The, 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 the sweet tasting but I wanted them to have real food because I fed them on an intellectual biochemical. And then I also fed them when it came to the nutritional. That's mm. what we got to do in terms of bridging these gaps. You got to feed people from a holistic perspective. If you never do that, our society will get further and further and further apart. And then people are going to say, what type of America do we have to live in? There is not going to be no America for, for our young people. If we don't deal with what's going on right now. And we got to, we got to, we got to change course. Wow. Dude, this this is this is so powerful. Your and and your message and your passion. Um, you know, you you talked about the when I heard you speak at church on Sunday, man. You talked about um, the the <laughs> the the pulling up and seeing all the pickup trucks down in in Logan, Ohio. <laughs> it was funny, man. But you know, I think that that you know, I I I I always ask this question. Because I know that you've been, I mean, first off, I want to promote your books. 
So um, I and I have three of them. I don't know where the third one is, um, but I have I have the socio-psychonomics, right? That I, I said that right. And then I have momentum power play. I don't know where the third one is. It's right here. Stewardship playbook. Yeah, I have I have that. I don't know where it is. I have a lot of books, man. But you know, I I think that um, you are you've been obviously you've been incredibly successful on the fiscal side of life, right? The NBA doesn't pay chump change, um, and and so you know, so you've done you've done well there, but but you've also done very well spiritually you've you've really surrendered to god and 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 accepted christ into your life and your heart and and it's a reflection of everything that you're doing right now in the world what what do you think the number one thing is and the 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 average answer is fear by the way so you have to do better than fear but what what do you think is stopping people from experiencing real financial success in life and freedom and happiness yeah, and I do believe they're they're related because I've been broke and homeless mm -hmm. and I've I've had a lot of money and having a lot of money is better. Yes. You know, it comes down to purpose. Uh, it really comes down to purpose because I think it's very important for for individuals. And here's what my challenge to those who have means, because the Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. You have an obligation and responsibility. It's not about sharing the wealth. What it is, is about really taking care of the needs of others who don't really have a chance. And as I tell people, I consider myself the modern day version of Robin Hood. I don't steal from the rich, I steal from the rich to give to the poor. What I do is I borrow from the wealthy to empower the less fortunate. That, that's, that's my tagline, because I think we, we, we've all heard about Robin Hood. And Robin Hood, yeah, he did good to the poor, but, but under 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 the guidance, really, and under the guise of, of deception and, and stealing from the rich. I yeah. disagree with that. I disagree with that because I think it has to be one where you got to really help people. And the only way you do that, and I tell wealthy people all the time, is you got to allow people who are disenfranchised, particularly communities of color, you got to give them the same playbook. That's why I write all these books, playbooks, momentum, power play. You got to give them a playbook for success. Because it doesn't matter if you're giving money, you got to have a playbook to be able to handle that money and you got to have a purpose. And this is the problem in society where people can be driven by money and have success and then realize that they're miserable people, that they have no hope, that they that they have all this and they're standing on the pile of money. But what good is it? Right. Right. So I think it's very important for people to understand that purpose is a very mystical concept. Here it is. Here's my definition for purpose. It is the assignment you were placed on this earth to accomplish for the benefit and betterment of others. Okay, we stop there. If you're a secular person, you can stop there. Now, if you're a person of faith like me, and is there, there I have to add this and to give glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the 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 purpose of life is God's gift to us, but life's purpose is our gift back to God. Mm. So I think we have to really understand what that actually means. And we, we're in an environment where people don't understand purpose. And purpose, as I say, it's akin to, 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 to being on the ship without a rudder. No one knows where that ship's going to end up, but we know eventually it's going to capsize. We do know that. 
Yeah. So we've yeah. got to get people to to chase your purpose. And if you chase your purpose, then your profits will come. And this is where people have to understand in society, particularly in, the, in an environment of runaway inflation, right? People still have to focus on purpose because you got to focus on the task at hand and not get distracted. And I think yeah. in our environment, it's very easy to be distracted by all the background noise. But if we focus on purpose, we will find not only profits, but in, in also we will find the productivity and the passion along the way that, that will be needed to carry out that purpose. And then money is just a byproduct, I believe it should be, of someone who has a driven purpose yeah. that, that, that is tied to really, as I said, the betterment of others. That's really what it's about. It's about the betterment of others. And if you can do that, then you should be able to handle the resources and particularly when it comes to not just the money, but the knowledge, the wisdom and all these things which are infinitely more uh, powerful, more potent, you know, uh, more, 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 more productive than anything that money can do. So I think yeah. we got to get people really to think about uh, what it means to be wealthy from a very holistic perspective, because you can have wealth. What about if you don't have your health? What's that going to do? What about if you don't have your stealth or your strength? You got to have your wealth. You got to have health. And you got to have stealth, particularly in a day and a time like like our environment and where we're dealing with today. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things I know for a fact, because I know a lot of people that have played in the NBA and in the NFL. And I, I know some people that, that spent many, many years in the NFL making millions, millions and millions of dollars that are broke mm -hmm. right now, like mm -hmm. broke because. Mm -hmm. Nobody says, hey, Lawrence, we're going to pay you, you know, $10 million a year and we're going to teach you how to manage that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, don't, they don't do that. Like, so mm -hmm. these, these guys go out here and just just blow through it and have no idea what to do. So I think what you're and I know that that's part of what you're trying to do is you're trying to educate people financially as well. So mm -hmm. I, I, I love your I love what you're doing, man. It's 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 incredible. And. And so everybody that that is watching or, or listens to this or watches the replay, MrFundy.com um, is is the place to start. Are are your books all three of them? Which I don't know where the third one is, but your books are all on your website, right? Yeah, the, the books on there. I mean, people feel compelled to support our mission. Obviously, LFYL, Lawrence Funberg Youth Organization. Uh, all, all deductions are are obviously tax deductible. Yeah. And, and, and and obviously I've been doing this for 20 years. Uh, my my focus is to is to improve the life prospects and the legacy pathways of others. And I think that's really what it's about. So you can you can purchase the books uh, if you're interested in speaking engagements. Uh, I am I am what I can I consider myself a compassionate capitalist, meaning I'm going to make a dollar, but I'm going to be compassionate at the same time. So yeah. I let people yeah. know that I, I travel all around. I speak. I, I love to speak. Uh, but 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 also that we have a nonprofit uh, focus and we also have a for profit focus. And I think those who are very successful and are able to monetize their assets, they should really think about both components, the for profit side and the nonprofit side. I think it's very important if you're someone who has who can monetize um, your assets. Yeah. So you're a paid speaker. <laughs> yes. I mean, I do yeah. some things, but but yes, yeah. I mean, my, my fees, yeah. I, I, obviously. Uh, can yep. be substantial for some organizations. And, yep. uh, you know, and I think for, for individuals, they have to understand that, that as my wife often says, you get what you pay for. 
and and then a lot of people have a discount mentality. I talk about this in in in, in social economics that if you have a impoverished mentality, a lot of times you think of cost, right? I, I can't afford it, or 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 I can't afford to let this opportunity pass up for me to feel better. That's where the the disconnect is in terms of spending money on things that you don't need because it's mm -hmm. about the feeling. That's why it's the cost. Now for the middle class, they have a discount mentality. They're always looking for a discount. What's the best deal that I can get? Well, if you have a discount mentality, then you're going to discount the value that I bring to the table in being able to help you or your organization. So wow. that's the mentality. Now, the people who are wealthy, they have a value mentality. And value is 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 what you pay above and beyond the of the cost of the item. That's what you get. Now, at, at the same time, value is is really something that uh, that is intangible in nature in that people who are wealthy, they understand value. They're not looking for a discount. And they will never allow me to discount my cost because they say what you're able to to provide my son or my daughter in terms of the experience with you, that's priceless. So right. I try to help people psychologically. We have a country that needs to deal with their socioeconomic filter. And if you never mm -hmm. deal with that, you will automatically be running in the same lane that you're born in. So you have to help people through that process. And that is really what I try to do with my books. But I know a lot of times how I write my books and how I speak, they're the same, but people interpret them differently. So you're gathering all everything that I'm saying in terms of my body language, my diction, yeah. you know, my cadence, you know, uh, semantics, syntax, all of that stuff. But you got to be able to meet people where they are, Ken, and take them where they need to go. And I think that's where America is. We're, we need leadership to really meet people where they are, take them where they need to go. And I think for a lot of people, they're hurting and they're looking for answers and they're waiting for someone to knock on their door and to say, I'm here to help you. And that person is right in front of them, but they refuse to see uh, that individual uh, in being in that capacity. Wow, man, this, this is so powerful, dude. I could listen to you all day long. Like literally you're, you're, and David Anthony just said this and highly educated you are. And that's impressive, man. You were here. You are in the NBA making millions of dollars and, and, and you're like, you know what? The ball's going to stop bouncing someday. I'm, I'm going to go get my MBA. That's unbelievable. People don't do that, but you, you had the, 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 the foresight to, to do it. And, Incredible. So Lawrence, thank you, Mr. Fundy. Thank you. I appreciate you being on here. We've gone a little bit over and that's fine by me. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience before we close up? I, I would, I would say this, that a lot of people are waiting for someone else to intervene and to step in and to be a difference maker. And my question is, why can't it be you? Why are you waiting for someone else? The opportunity is right in front of you. The opportunity is right beside you. And the opportunity can be behind you in terms of you celebrating a momentous occasion and looking back and saying, when the opportunity presented itself, I stepped forward. And we have a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I think about Martin Luther King, who we just celebrated yeah. his holiday. And I, and I think about him when he pleaded with the white moderates. He said, will you please come to our, our defense? Will you please support us, right? that we're, and particularly those who were Christian, these were Christians. Yeah. He said, we're, 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 we're covered under the same blood. We're, 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 we're saved by, by, by the same God. He says, but we have different skin color. 
And then when the opportunity for them to, to step forward, they, they backed away. They said, nah, you know, I, I, I got too much. My social capital, my emotional capital, my, my relational capital. Nah, I can't, I can't really help you. And then now there's a debt that's due that we all must pay as a society. And then the payment has accrued with interest. And then we don't have the means to be able to pay this debt, not based on how we're operating in our present uh, 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 construct in terms of our social, uh, racial and political dynamic. No, we yeah. don't. So we have to have people to step forward. And when you see a need and you don't fulfill it and you stand on the sidelines, a lot of innocent people get hurt in the process. Amen. We are in America and I'm asking people to step forward, see a need and fulfill it. And if you do not, then their blood will be on your hands. Wow. That's powerful. Lawrence, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom, your heart. Your heart is, man, your heart's good. I, I, I like what you're doing, man. So thank you so much for sharing. Everybody go over to Mr. Fundy and get get copies of, of the books. I, is there a way for them to get signed copies? Yeah, I'll, I'll sign them uh, if oh. they want to get them for family members, if they if, if their organization, uh, if they, if and I do a lot of speaking with these companies on all of these issues, and I really challenge people. And, and one thing that if you've been listening to me, I'm going to bring a lot of conviction. But the conviction will be from the place of I want you to be better and not bitter. I don't care if you're black, you're white, straight, gay. It doesn't matter. My focus is helping all people become better and not bitter. That's me. And and, and so it, it could be your church. It could be your company. Uh, whatever the case may be, I'm here to help other people. And that's what God has commissioned me to do. Amen. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. And thank you to everybody who's been on here watching and, and if you haven't shared this out, please share it out. It's a powerful, powerful message. Lawrence Funderburk, thank you, sir. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks for okay. having me. Everybody have a blessed day. Thanks so much.